All right, if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. We'll look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. Uh, this will serve as an overview to, to essentially both letters um, as well as really setting the tone for what it is that Peter's trying to communicate. What we're going to see straight away is that he's doing something very formative. He's making a, a statement, an identifying statement about himself and the audience that he's writing to that is critical for us to try to understand. A lot of times we can kind of skip over the greeting and sometimes skip over the benediction a bit quickly when in essence there's just a lot of good in there. So uh, we're going to focus our time just on these two verses. Um, but before we step into that and start talking about the two letters, let me ask you a question that I think will be helpful. Uh, where is home for you? And it's an interesting and actually very complex question, isn't it? Because home uh, can mean lots of different things depending on your experience. It could be, it could be something you use to refer to a place, a town, right? Uh, it could be a physical structure, as in uh, a particular house. Um, Susan's parents still live in the house that she predominantly grew up in, and so there's just tons of memories for her. When we go back there, uh, her granny's house in North Carolina was a place that ha held so many memories, so to go back there for her was very, very pertinent. Um, I didn't, I don't have that. Uh, I don't have a physical place. We moved around a whole bunch, so home is a very complex concept for me, uh, as I'm sure it is for lots of you, um, because we, I, I grew up living in efficiency motels. If any of you saw the movie The Florida Project, um, the efficiency motels I lived in were nowhere near as cool as those were. Uh, they were much worse. And so um, if, if any of you have grown up living in apartments, I also grew up in the aluminum ghetto, which is also called a trailer park. Um, and so it's, it's a complex idea, isn't it? But it's one that if we're honest, it really has a very formative impact on us as to how we would answer that question. Because if you say, nowhere, that's not neutral, is it? To feel like you've got no place that you can call home, or if the place that you have holds this host of, of, of bad memories and ghosts that haunt in all kinds of ways, not real ghosts, I didn't just disqualify myself in part, um, but, but you, you follow what I'm saying, metaphorically, the things that haunt us. Uh, and if you answer nowhere, there's a weight to that that's, that's got a gravity that, that's hard to shake. For some of us, it's the other way. You are so tied to a place, you're so tied to the structure that it makes, you, it, makes it hard for you to wander very far. It makes it hard for you to kind of see, wait, God could call me out of this place that I love. God could call me away from this land that I love, this family land, this family circumstance, this place that holds so much memories. So, it, so it's a, just recognize, even the question is complex. For some of us, we have very fond memories, and that's very helpful. But how you answer the question, where is home, uh, has an impact largely on your future, doesn't it? How far you will go, where you're willing to, uh, um, what you're willing to hear from God, right? Are you willing to hear that he may send you to a land you do not know? Don't go thinking you're Abraham. But it is within the realm of reason that he sometimes calls us out of where we are most comfortable, um, it's interesting for me, I, I spent a good bit of my life trying to come up out of a particular kind of type and place. So one of the things that was interesting about watching the movie, The Florida Project, I had a lot of emotions that were really hard to deal with because it sparked so much, and yet it was so familiar to me. 
Um, and, and so when I go back to certain places, uh, whether it's Riverdale, which I spent part of my time growing up in, uh, or Fairburn, Georgia, which is where I spent part of my time growing up, or Union City, or Macon, where we spend a lot of our time, and into some of the areas that are not really where you'd probably want to have a home, um, there's still something very comfortable about it to me. It's, it's, a strange, it's strange to me that it, there's, it, you can just see it. It's like stepping into uh, a pair of well-worn shoes. There's something just very comfortable about it. Um, and yet God has called me to a place that I, I would not have north of Atlanta in Cobb County, which is home for so many of you. I wouldn't have picked it, no disrespect to anything here. I, there's great stuff happening all around. And it's a beautiful place. And we've come to see it as home, Right? Um, but, the, but the Lord does interesting things with this concept. So how we answer it oftentimes affects how we think about who we are and mission. It could be a very limiting concept or it can be a very freeing concept, but one we need to wrestle with nonetheless. And so Peter is actually going to step right into the middle of that question for a group of people who have been dispersed, who've been kicked out of what had become their home, which was Rome, which wasn't their home to start with because they got kicked out of the other place they called home, which was Israel. And so they've been on the move for a long time. And so he's going to speak to this in a way that I think we need to hear because we are such a globalized and transient culture, right? And so um, the question is, what qualities is it that make a place feel like home to you? And is it actually permanent? Um, and so that's something that we need to wrestle with as we step into this letter. So let me give you a little bit of background. Peter's writing this in about 62 or 63 AD, um, which would have been about 30 years or so after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Um, and so Christianity has grown. If you read the book of Acts, Christianity's grown. And one of the things that's coming is persecution. The reason persecution is coming is because Christianity has actually made an interesting difference in the world. Um, in fact, some of the emperors took note of how well the Christians loved people, and it was shameful to him because he, as king in his own kingdom, wasn't doing that, or his people were not doing that. And so instead of, instead of just changing, he figured, well, if you stamp out the competition, that automatically makes you look better. There's, you're the only example. Where have we heard this before? Cain and Abel. Right? So why doesn't Cain just say, all right, Lord, what do I need to do to, to bring you a sacrifice worthy of your glory and worship you well? Instead, what does he do? I'll just kill Abel and, and I'm going to be all you've got. And so you'll take what I give you. Which well, is kind of what's beginning to happen in the kingdom. So as Christianity is growing and being successful, um, the rulers and leaders recognize we've got to scatter this. So the first attempt was they, they didn't really want to just kill them outright. So they figured if, if we disperse them, if we water them down, if we kick them out of what they call home, put them in a new place, they'll get disoriented and it'll just kind of die out. Is that what happened? No. Like leaven, scattered in, in the flour and bread, Christianity grew and was successful in the first century sense. Um, and was able to actually continue to grow. And so, so Peter is actually preparing his audience, not because they're currently being slaughtered, but because they are going to be very soon. 
If you know anything about history, 70 AD is coming, which is where the temple is destroyed and all kind of crazy things go on. Um, and uh, other emperors that follow uh, use the sword in a very vicious and cruel way against the church. And yet the blood of the martyrs served as the seedbed for the church to continue to grow. What God had started, he would finish. So Peter's trying to prepare them. Listen, it's, it's the, the, the darkness grows, the storm is coming is essentially what he's saying. So it's critical that we hear it in that key um, so that we recognize just how mundane his recommendations are. What we're going to notice is that he very quickly says, all right, it's going to get bad. However, continue to live. Continue to honor your wife in marriage. Husbands, pray for your wives in an understanding way because you're going to need prayer in this suffering. Wives, seek to live in such a way that it is, it is honoring to the Lord and you make a difference. Even if your husband is an unbeliever, your mission has not changed. Submit to the local authorities, which is a difficult thing to do at times, but you can't, like us submitting now is nothing like them then. And so he's saying, don't forget the mission. Continue to live, though you are going to suffer, because this is what your Lord did, and this is how you are shaped and formed most. Second Peter, he's going to address an issue that we need to also keep in mind. False teachers have come in. They were trying to get people turned around. If you can't, if you can't just outright kill people, it's a lot easier if you just kind of twist them and get them off base, right? Just get them confused. And so in the principalities and darkness, false teachers were unleashed like wolves among sheep. And Peter wants to make sure that they don't, don't fall for it. Make sure you recognize a false teacher. We would be wise to do the same because we swim in such an age of information. And we read things so, and, and this is not, don't hear this wrong, but we read and listen and watch so uncritically. Let me say it different so unprayerfully, so ignorant of what the Bible actually says so that we would know when someone is actually a false teacher, right? This is why we're so passionate here about trying to make sure that you know, you've got to know Scripture. You have to because otherwise there is so many different avenues trying to lead you astray. And remember, as Hebrews tells us, a little bit off course at the beginning of the journey means you're how much off course at the end. Any of you nautical people, miles off course. Any of you who fly, right? I think that's, is it true also for flying? Thank you, yes. So that's important, right? So we, we have to be a people who get in and do the work, who recognize the work that God is doing and join in that so that um, we can honor and glorify him where we are because he has placed us there. Now, as he's preparing his audience for this, he refers to them as the dispersion, which we'll get to in just a minute, but I want to speak to this. Uh, some of your Bibles may actually have the term diaspora, which is a, a term for, it was a Jewish term, and it referred to the Jews who were scattered in exile. Um, some versions say the dispersion because people maybe thought, eh, these aren't exactly Jews because his audience is actually a mix of Jew and Gentile from Rome. And so what happened was they had been kicked out of Rome and scattered. This is why he's writing to all of these different provinces in uh, Asia Minor, which turns out to be modern-day Turkey. And so they've been scattered in all these places. 
Um, but the persecution is going to find them because where they're scattered to, they're going to be Christians. And if they're going to be Christians, it's going to be a problem. All right, if you would hear what Edmund Clowney says, this is a, such a great quote um, uh, to, for us to, as we step into this letter, and it's one that we'll probably come back to, especially the question that he asks at the end. Listen to what it says. He says, Peter calls his audience the scattered people and says they are strangers, aliens who are transients, temporary residents, travelers headed for their native land. These terms give us the key to Peter's whole letter. Peter is writing a traveler's guide for Christian pilgrims. He reminds them that their hope is anchored in their homeland. They are called to endure alienation as strangers, but they have a heavenly citizenship and destiny. I want to pause for just a second and tell you what I, nor Edmund Clowney, nor Peter just said. He did not just say, be of such heavenly mindedness that you are of no earthly good. And the reason we're going to know that's true is because Peter gets so practical so quickly in chapter 2 where he's saying this is how you must live and he anchors it, which we actually read in part of our confession, he anchors it in the reality that by your witness, many will confess that God is God. You are still witnesses. You were saved for something, to be a people. Now, your heavenly mindedness is to recognize the hope that is to come at the end. This was the value of us reading in our series on Malachi, the benediction was 2 Peter 3, 8 through 13. We just read it for weeks on end, that the hope that we have is that there will be a new heavens and new earth. The hope that we have is Jesus is going to make all things new, which means this present suffering pales in comparison to what is to come, but we have to meditate on what is to come. All right, so he goes on to ask this question, which we will come back to again and again. Does the Christian, if all that's true, does the Christian flee from the world? That means, do we, do we just do everything we can to, to eliminate its influence upon us? Do we do everything we can to be a fortress, to be quartered safe, to not know what the world seems to know? And what, what does that do to mission? If our primary thought is we've got something that we must protect instead of recognizing what you have is bought and paid for and cannot be taken away and it is given to you to give away lavishly as it was lavishly given to you. See, we are not called to flee from the world. But he goes on. Are we called to fight it? Are, are we called to, to, to gain keyboard courage and light somebody up on some blog who gets something wrong sometime, somewhere, for all of eternity for people to be able to go back to and be like, wow, those guys are jerks. Are we called to fight it in the sense that we, we fight as if the battle has not already been won? Are we called to fight it as ones who are fighting enemies, conflating sin with the person, making them demonic to us, instead of recognizing they still bear the image? And our job is not to fight them. It is to see them join the family and be redeemed. Ultimately, they ask, should we conform to it? Should we just give in? 
and go, fine, we'll open with a Dave Matthews band song because that's what the kids like these days. 20 years ago, maybe. Uh, <laughs> it's just confusing, those churches that do that. Or Hootie and the Blowfish. Any fans out there? Yeah, all over the age of 45. Um, I've been to several shows. I, I'm among you. Uh, and so, no, uh, no, we're not to conform to it. We're not to say, this doesn't matter. Let's just, let's just make it easy. Let's just be friends with the world. Let's go heavy, deep, insider, and see how it works out. Because what's funny about the world is Christians who act like the world are way more noxious to them than Christians who act like Christians. Trust me, I was one of the radical anti-theists who greatly disrespected Christians who had not read the Bible, Christians who I could know the Bible better than they did with what little ignorance I had, but I always was confounded by a genuine, practicing, living it out pilgrim in Christ. Always. Even Bertrand Russell, even um, uh, the guy who wrote The Plague, uh, Camus, said at the end of their lives, what the world needs more than anything else is Christians who actually act like Christians. It could make a difference. Jordan Peterson's okay with you guys. Me too. Because he thinks that actually if you lived it out, it would be good. He's a stoic. He's probably cynical. Camille Paglia, who's a first wave feminist, atheist, She's okay with you, with us being Christians, as long as we live it out, because she sees the value in the world. So conformist is just noxious. It's not just that God will spit us out, the world will spit us out. And then he asks, should we change it? Should we change the world? Or is there a deeper meaning to the call to pilgrimage? This is the question that we will wrestle with throughout First and Second Peter. What is it that we're called to do? Now, I know many of you can push on any one of those things I just said. You can come up with a scenario or a circumstance where, yes, we need to flee from the world, where, yes, we need to step into the world, where, yes, we need to fight certain aspects of the world, but that's not your main calling. If you do those things, it is always doing it in such a way that you're moving toward redemption and making the family bigger. You have one purpose for which you have been saved. And that is to glorify God and enjoy him, which he is most glorified and he is most enjoyable in redemption. When people are being transformed. And so this is who we are and ought be. So with all that being said, let's actually read the text. Only two verses, we'll get there. First and second Peter, hear the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, there's several things here that are very important to us <coughs> in terms of identification. And so if we get the identification aspect wrong as we go into the letter of Peter, we're going to get way turned around and twisted. So it's critical that we take a little bit of time here. First, Peter's identifying himself, right? He's saying, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we know from Acts chapter 1 that to be an apostle 
he actually had to witness the resurrected Christ. So all the people who come after, who say, I'm an apostle by their own declaration, it's unbiblical. And you may say, what about Paul? Well, remember, Paul was actually a Pharisee and around when Jesus was alive, when Jesus was crucified, and he runs into Jesus on the Emmaus Road, and it is the resurrected Jesus. And folks, he goes blind, and it's just, it's overwhelming. But he's the last one in that lineage. So for us to take up that title is to say something that cannot be true. And so he very clearly is saying, I'm one of the apostles, meaning I have witnessed the living, resurrected Christ. Now that becomes critically important later in the letter. He's going to keep coming back to that reality, his identification as authority. And we need to recognize that. The fact that he says of Jesus Christ is very specific as well, and it identifies that it is, it is Christ alone to whom he testifies, submits, and contains his authority. All right? And then he says, um, to those who are elect exiles. Now, there's a word that critically uh, defines who we are in relationship to God, and there's a word that critically defines who we are in relationship to the world. And, and we need to deal with the first word first, which I think probably has the most baggage for some of you in here. Some of you, when you hear the word elect, you kind of twinge a little bit. You tighten up because you're like, uh-oh, we're fixing to talk about predestination. Um, and, and there's no, I don't have enough time to put you completely at ease on the word elect, but let me give you something to chew on to, to think about it maybe in a, in a reframed way, Right? I think when most of us hear the word elect, what immediately comes to our mind is that there was some point in, in history where all of us were neutral, right? Uh, we were just, it was tabula rasa. We had not been written on yet. And God's going, hmm, you're in. Well, not so much. He's out. Uh, just arbitrarily kind of picking people, right? As if there was, but what we should recognize is, is election, is always, 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 always a word of redemption. It is, it is connected to redemption. Now, we can philosophically get tangled up in infra and superlapsarianism. I am not ignorant of those concepts. The Bible just doesn't say for the most part. You can come at me with Ephesians 1 and say, before the foundation of the world, which is when we were all tabula rasa. Uh, and, and again, what I would point to you and say is, he's talking to Gentiles and he's making sure that they know that they were not automatically out, that his redemption is not plan B. It has always been plan A. And that's good news. So he's making sure, hey guys, I want, I want you to know who you are in God first. You are elect. Now, what comes with that is you didn't pick him. He picked you. Which is really important for those of us who try to work ourselves to the bone doing what we cannot do. And we are so weary and we are so tired because we've tried to save ourselves and everybody around us and the project is failing because he didn't call us to do that. But he redeemed us through no fault of our own, through no goodness of our own, through nothing that he saw of us, which is good news for us understanding how he's going to redeem others. Which is why I go back to when you treat sinners as outright detestable enemies, you are failing to remember who you were. You are failing to remember what God said of them. Even they bear the image, which is why you can't murder them. Detest them though you might. And so he's telling him, you've been chosen 
and in the word as well for something. If I elect you to an office, you should do something. They don't always, but you should. There's work that you are given to that which you have been elected to. So what have they been elected to? God's redemptive mission. They have been elected into a story that is unfolding. They have been elected into the work that God is doing in the world. And if we get this twisted, if we can't recognize that you are being invited into a fantastic unfolding story that has eternal implications, if you can't recognize that you've been given gifts and abilities to use in the context of the kingdom, then it is very difficult for you to be a Christian at all. No one would accuse you of it. And so when he says elect, there's a ton of freight that comes with that that is, that is theological and, it's, and it's, um, it's practical, it's missiological, and they need to hear that in that key. We need to hear this in this key. You are elect. Not because you're better than anybody else, which is one of the reasons we read Deuteronomy 7 as our confession from last time. And even the confession we're reading, yes, you are a, uh, a royal spiritual race, not because of anything you've done. You, you were once not a people, and now we together are a greater people, not bound by uh, race or creed or any of those other things, but instead, Christ is all in all. And so when he says elect, all of that comes with it. The next word, exiles, of the dispersion uh, or diaspora, that is their relationship to the world. They're not of this world. They can find no permanent home here. We can find no permanent home here. Nothing gold can stay. We can't make it work. And so he's telling them that you are not of this world. You are supposed to be different. You are supposed to, because of uh, his foreknowledge, because of your sanctification in the Spirit, and because of your obedience to Jesus, which is sprinkled with his blood, you are to look different. Now, does this mean you can't watch anything over G in a movie? No, there's worldly people who only watch G-rated movies. Right? But, but if you do, if you're going to watch... Calvary, or The Florida Project, or Lady Bird, or any of these films, you have to watch it different than the way the world watches it. It's not just neutral entertainment. You have to watch it with eyes wide open, critiquing, and I use that in the best sense of the word, and a bunch of you are like, I mean, I just want to entertain me. God, I so hate this. I know. Come watch a film with me. It gets worse. Matt, it's terrible. You think I'm bad? Matt's horrible. He can't. Anyway, uh, <laughs> and it's a true story, actually. I didn't make that up either. The pedicure thing's true. That's true. Um, and so, and so we, we cannot, we no longer can just be entertained by the things of the world. We can no longer be entertained by the suffering of others. We no longer can purely be entertained because we don't care about the lyrics. We just like the beat, blah, 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 Right? We recognize that nothing is neutral here. You understand that, right? If you don't think so, go back and, and find a song from when you were like 12 or 13 and you're starting to 
you know, sneak Van Halen's 5150 into your room or whatever. Listen to the lyrics, pay close attention, and you tell me if it actually is neutral. Not just Van Halen's 5150, by the way. Anything. Force MD's Tender Love. I know there's some of y'all out there who love that song. I am one of you. Peter Gabriel's So, Tears for Fears. Um, and any of those, there, nothing is neutral. Aerosmith, go back, if you don't think that the most vulgar music in all of history was already written long before gangster rap said word one, go back and listen to everything ZZ Top ever wrote. It is unbelievable. Aerosmith, go back and listen to their early catalog and tell me what is it are they talking about? Country music too now. Luke Bryan. Ain't neutral. I watched, I watched my daughter live out the worst part of what country music had to teach us and offer. I watched myself live out the worst part of what the cure's disintegration could shape and form. It's everything is liturgical. Everything is work and shaping. Nothing is neutral. So we have to recognize that we are exiles. Yes, we can laugh at the best jokes. But we have to remember that comedy is oftentimes a Trojan horse to get ideas in places where nothing else can reach. And oftentimes it's the comedian who gets there first. So are you paying attention? Are you recognizing what is shaping and forming you because you are an exile? Now, does that term mean that nothing in the world matters and everything can just burn? Can we just be wicked dualists? The answer is no. Everything matters here. God created these things, and we should leverage everything we can for redemption. Everything. Literature, movies, music, etc. You've got to know your limitations, though. You've got to know how it affects you. You've got to be in accountability with other Christian community, which is why he doesn't say, to you, the elect, exile. He's not talking to individuals. This is important too. The plurality matters. He's talking to a group of people. We need each other. We've got to hold each other accountable. We've got to, uh, because I don't have all the gifts. I can't see, even though I have studied and this is my job, I can't see scripture through only my own eyes. I need you. I need, we need each other to shape and form the, the, the biblical vision for the people of God in this church. But we got to know who we are in reference to God and in reference to the world. And notice that part of this, he, he casts in Trinitarian language. He says, to you, the elect exiles from all these places, according to the foreknowledge of God. So part of how we're different is that we are in fact elect. We recognize that God is sovereign and he is good and that doesn't answer everything. Deuteronomy 29, 29, some things are mysterious. That which is clear, we should clearly do. That which is mysterious, we have to leave in mystery. That drives us nuts, by the way. And in fact, if you could get an answer for why horrible things happen in this world, I doubt it would bring you any pleasure whatsoever the answer won't change your circumstance. Can you tell me, for those of you who suffer and have suffered, if I came to you and I said, here's exactly why you suffer, and just gave you an answer, do you honestly think you'd be like, ah, well, that, that's awesome? Then, yes, crank it up to 11. Make it worse. 
I want it darker, to quote Leonard Cohen. No. We, we, we wouldn't. And yet we search for an answer, don't we? We wander about looking for answers instead of doing what Peter's going to tell us to do, live. Live knowing you don't know everything, but God does. And he also says, uh, in the sanctification of the Spirit, which means as you go along, you're going to have this helper along the way with you, guiding you, teaching you, shaping you, working in and through you, uh, that you are going to have every bit of power and glory you need to do what he's called you to do. Every bit. And then he goes on to say, for and the whole reason you do this is so you could be obedient to Christ. And what did Christ ask you to do? Two things. Somebody help me. Somebody other than Susan, help me. <laughs> Got to be another Christian in here. There's one. Love God, love neighbor. To put it real short. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as who? Yourself. And a lot of you love some you. I love some me. Sometimes I, you don't want how I love me to love. Anyway, I eat poorly sometimes. But you're welcome at my table to tell me to stop. But it's for the obedience. It's to do those two things, which is what we're here for. And then it says, and for sprinkling with his blood, which that is, calls back to my Exodus language. And it reminds us that we are on a journey and that that which God started, he will finish. Which doesn't answer every contingency and every question or and doesn't work out everything that we are looking at and wonder why or wonder when or wonder how. But what it does is it gives us confidence. If you're going to suffer well as an elect exile, you must remember these three things. And then as a result of that, and, and by virtue of us being sprinkled with his blood, it reminds us that we are justified in Christ for all eternity. And it reminds us that we are set apart for his service. Remember, that's sprinkling. Sprinkling is to set instruments apart for the Redeemer's hands. And that's who we are. And then he says, and if all that gets down deep, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Because you're going to need both in great measure to journey in this fallen world as an elect exile. Listen to what Paul Gardner says, who used to be at Christ Church down in Buckhead. He says, like the Israelites before them, called by God to be a people who would serve him, so the readers are reminded that God, listen, has always intended that they should be his people and should serve him where he has placed them. In these Roman provinces, their election by God reminds them that they are Christians simply by God's grace, his undeserved mercy and love. It, is all, it also reminds them that they are chosen for a purpose and that God will keep them and protect them as they fulfill his will for them. Did you hear that? What he's saying is you handle your work and I will handle mine. You handle the thing to which I have called you and I will resource you with every single solitary thing you need to do it. But what Peter's gonna tell us is that while all that's true, you will suffer. There is going to be a hurt. 
Now, what's interesting is uh, that we recognize that there is a unique way we get to commune with Christ in this life that is utterly unique and won't be true in eternity. And that way is suffering. I don't like it either. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't want to any more than any of you do. And I'm not trying to just get, you know how misery loves company. I'm not trying to get you, come on, everybody, let's go suffer together. Fine. Uh, that's not it. But we have to recognize who we are, where we are, and what's working against us. And when we fail to recognize who we are, where we are, and what is working against us, then that is where we find ourselves in great seasons of doubt and brokenness. Or we turn away and give up, which ties back into last week's sermon in some measure. Notice what the psalmist did in the dark when he said, why are you downcast, O my soul? He kept coming back to, who am I, who are you, and where are we going? Peter's right away saying, this is who you are, this is who God is, and this is where you're going. So I'd ask you this, what most defines who you are and who you are striving to be? Now, if you're not, if you, if you don't ask this question regularly, and listen, this needs to happen from youngest to oldest. The younger you ask the question, the younger you're thinking about what is forming and shaping you and the scales drop from your eyes and you can see how some of these things are acting upon you, nothing is neutral, the better. So parents, you must help your children see this without at the same time treating them like an enemy who has invaded your territory. And so, who, uh, what most defines who you are and who you're striving to be? Is it God or some measure of the world? And some things you can look at, you can look at your reaction to things. Oftentimes, it's telling our reaction to things. That's really where it happens, right? When you're, when you're operating at the sub-operative level and you're just responding to something, it tells you everything you need to know. I can tell you all day long, hey, come talk to me. I'm just a big old teddy bear. <laughs> Y'all come talk to me. If you come talk to me, I'm a bear, but it's grizzly, not teddy. You're not coming back. You're not. Because there's, there's, I'm telling you something. My words and my actions must match. We've said it this way before. Your stated theology must be your practice theology as best you can. And when you miss, repent. Say you're sorry. Deal with it. But unfortunately, so often what we say is not how we live. So you have to look at the moments that, that, are, that are either you're reacting to something or when no one is watching. And what is shaping you in all that? It's a great question for you to wrestle with. If you need some help, come talk to me. I'm just an old teddy bear. I'm trying. Uh, I put gloves on the claws at times. Uh, but we do want to help you in this. This is a tough question and one we have to wrestle with and come back to often, don't we? Because again, we wind up lost or we get off track or something comes in and changes things. And then what most defines your purpose in life? Every one of you has a purpose. Did you know that? You're not arbitrary. You're not just a pillar of salt that came out of the celestial ooze that means nothing. You are a purposed and intentioned creation. What is your purpose? 
There is the grand purpose, like for those of you who are like, oh, well, I'll just glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's great, but what about now? What does that look like? How does that play out where you are? Are you trying to do too much? Are you thinking too highly of yourself or are you not thinking highly enough of yourself? And maybe it just depends on the day. And so it's important that we look at what is shaping us, God or the world in the worst sense of what that word means. Not that all material things are bad. So what do we learn from First and Second Peter? <clears throat> we learn that God, that, that we as God's chosen people are to live in the power of the Holy Spirit in service to Christ's redemptive work as we journey through this fallen world. We are not called out of, we are called into. Victor Furnish says this, he says, Christians are the elect of God and thus only temporarily resident in this present world. This makes clear their status as resident aliens, which by the way is another, another way of saying elect exile. So long as they remain in the world, their existence receives its definition and direction from the future, not from the present. Let me just tell you what he just said. Who we are is, is ultimately shaped by the fact that Christ will return and make all things new. That is who we are. We are not, the present circumstance can be very confusing to us. And remember, the present circumstance changes, does it not? The future will not change. Christ is coming again. Would that we be defined by that and not every wind of doctrine or medical report or whatever may come our way. We are defined by God, not from the world. Yet, for a time, they, being the, the resident aliens, are in the world and beset by its claim and contingencies, transitory as those are. So Victor's just recognizing, listen, while I know this is true, I also recognize you're in a, t you're in a difficult spot. Things are coming at you and it's changing so much. This is why you must have a firm foundation. This is why you must you must cultivate that firm foundation. You cannot say it once and that's good enough. If that were true, we wouldn't need an eternity to enjoy and explore and live out what that means. It'll be a, a, a lived out reality. It'll be physical. That's why we can't say the world is all bad in that sense. And so what's shaping us? What's making us? What's forming us? It's a good thing that we have the Lord's table this morning because this is a formative thing. This is a definitive thing. This is a declarative thing in which Jesus says, come sinner, now saint, come. It is declarative in that Christ's work is finished. We eat of this table, not as ones who are wondering how it's going to end because the table declares you guys keep eating until I come back so that you don't forget. Which is why some of you are like, well, we should do this every week. I don't disagree with you, right? But it's good that we have it as a reminder today. Now let us take and eat and see that the Lord is good, even if you don't feel like you've got it all figured out and worked out in your mind. Long as you know that you're a sinner. Right? Anybody in here uh, think they're perfect? Don't raise your hand. It'd be hard. I'd have to deal with it. But none of us really think, I know you better than that. You don't, none of you think you're perfect. That's not really our issue. We know we're broken. The question is whether or not we know the cure, the double cure, which is Christ. 
which is declared in the table. And so if you know you're a sinner, imperfect, in need of a Savior, and you know that Christ alone is Savior, and maybe you're not sure of a lot of other things after those two realities, you get to eat at this table. Because it is this table that will nourish you back into those realities. It is in this table that the Spirit takes and uses this meager bread and this juice to transform something deep down inside of us. See, God is not just audience. He's at work even here. And so as you receive these things this morning, be meditating on those things. And let us remember what it was that Christ said. So important in that last supper, he grabbed bread as he was sitting around the table with those he loved, those he had journeyed with, those who were elect exiles. And he says, this, this bread is my body and it will be broken for you. And what he was saying to them is um, that in the foreknowledge of God and God's great grace, that they were redeemed, they were saved, that their guilt and shame was not going to have the final say over them, that he declared who they were. He declares who we are. So the elders would go ahead and come forward. All of the ones present, because there's only four. Five, including Wes, I'm sorry. Um, so as you receive the bread, would you give thanks for who you are? Would you give thanks that Christ has defined you in, uh, as elect for God the Father? Would you give thanks that you've been given work to do in this good, uh, this, this good kingdom unfolding in this broken world? Just take time to meditate on that, and we'll, if you would, hold the bread, and we'll all take together as family. Let me pray for the broken bread. Father, thank you that you have redefined us from sinner to saint, and that as we come before your throne this morning spiritually in this meal, God, you are nourishing us. You are loving us. You are giving us what we need for the journey. This is bread for the journey. Nourish us deep in our souls. Repair our broken hearts. Help us in our fractured minds. Help us in our blindness and our deafness to you. Help us again know and see and taste that you are good. In Christ's name. Amen.